Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Follow along as I read verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What is it that has given Christian men and women throughout the ages the ability to attempt and follow through with some of the most selfless acts of love in the history of the world, particularly in terms of worldwide mission. We might think of some of the great stories from the evangelization of our own country, the courage of a David Brainerd risking life and limb to reach Native Americans with the gospel, or the tireless preaching of the evangelist George Whitfield being carried along by an almost otherworldly sense of strength and power, especially in his voice. We may think of the love that compelled the likes of Adoniram Judson or William Carey or David Livingston and others. It may not take us too long until we arrive at the name Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was born for China. You could say God made Hudson Taylor for China. Ever since Hudson was an infant, his parents pleaded with God that their son would be devoted to God's work in China. And after coming to faith as a teenager, Hudson would write this, It was after an intense season of prayer that God impressed upon me His unspeakable awe with unspeakable joy. And the rest of Hudson Taylor's life would be filled with this unflagging determination to see the inland people of China know Christ. Persecution, ridicule from fellow Christians about his methods, sickness, the death of his wife and four of his children, and much more did not deter his love for China. In the face of these hardships, Taylor would write, If I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for China. God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow Him. God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on Him. God's work, done in God's way, will never lack God's supply. Hudson Taylor certainly would have known of the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 3, and he certainly lived a life in accord with them. Hudson Taylor's greatest need is is our greatest need. 
and it forms the substance and the content of Paul's prayer, that we need the power of God to supply the strength of God through the Spirit of God to enable love for the Son of God so that we might live for the glory of God. Let me say that differently. Because of our inseparable union with Jesus through the gospel, you and I have but continually need the power and strength of God to help us increasingly know the infinite love of Christ so that we can live lives that glorify His name. Before we walk through Paul's prayer here, let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, we come to You asking for strength. We come to You now after a week of who knows what kind of trials and struggles and hardships and failures and sin and terrible choices. Maybe not for all of us, but for many of us. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would come as we have just sung and that He would impress the Word upon our hearts. It is the Word and the Word alone that has the power to transform as you give it life within us. We pray for inner heart transformation even now as we look into this prayer of the Apostle Paul this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we mentioned when we started working our way through the book of Ephesians, a while back, this epistle divides very nicely into two recognizable halves. Uh, said very simply, Paul is aimed at grounding believers in gospel realities, in Christian doctrine, in objective truth in chapters 1 through 3, before turning the corner and applying those gospel realities and those Christian doctrines into the particulars of life. So the intentional arrangement of this epistle reminds us of the essential nature of living our lives out of the wellspring that is objective, revealed truth. Should we flip Paul's order and presume we don't need to first steep ourselves in the grandest of biblical themes that he's already laid out for us, things such as redemption, forgiveness, adoption, Election, our eternal inheritance, the mercy of God, the grim consequences of sin, the fate of every evil force in the universe, the limitless power of God in the life of a Christian, our union with Christ, the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, heavenly citizenship, and our participation in God's eternal temple-building enterprise. Should we have a ho-hum attitude towards grasping these truths? I'm just going to make a pretty safe bet that living in light of these things won't hold your interest either. Certainly not in the way or with the heart that rightly worships and honors God. You cannot flip the script and try to get busy living for God without first worshiping Him for all that He has done for us through Jesus. So we arrive at the end of the first half of this book this morning. And Paul signals this conclusion by offering his second prayer of the book 
as well as this concluding doxology of praise to God. Paul's prayer models both intercession as well as adoration. This prayer is is Trinitarian in that it honors each member of the Godhead for their respective work on behalf of each and every Christian. And this prayer naturally accompanies the truths that Paul's been previously laying out in chapters 1 through 3. It's also preparatory for what Paul is going to unfold in the second half of the book. So this prayer is communal in that Paul envisions comprehension of Christ's love as happening with all the saints. So in this prayer, Paul keeps it, however, to a single sentence. Wow, brevity, you might think. Well, that single sentence is 86 words long. These verses flow naturally from Paul's amazement at the beginning of chapter 3 that he has been tasked with making known the mystery of the gospel, which is God uniting Jew and Gentile into one spiritual family and giving them both equal access with boldness and confidence to come before His presence. Paul is going now to model what it looks like to approach God in this way. So let's consider the structure of Paul's prayer. He writes first in verses 14 and 15, as he approaches God in prayer, an in introduction to God the Father, if you will. We see uh, the, the power for a deeply rooted love is his request in verses 16 and 17. We see him continue on with closely related themes, but, but continuing on to, to plead, to request for power to comprehend Christ's love in verses 18 and 19. And then lastly, we see in 20 and 21, the doxology ascribing praise to God. So let's first consider approaching God in prayer. For this reason, Paul writes in verse 14, harking back to the previous truths that he's laid out, Paul now begins to model this bold, confident access to God through prayer, not for himself, but for his Ephesian brothers and sisters. His prayer offers intercession for them, which he approaches the Lord from his knees, bowed in worshipful reverence. Just as many of us considered in the Bible class that we just had on corporate worship this morning, both the Hebrew word as well as the Greek word for worship have a a literal meaning that involves a bowing down, a prostrating oneself before a divine or a sovereign of some kind. The entire body is involved with devotion and subjection before a king. In every New Testament occurrence of this verb, bow, it is connected to worshiping either God or a false god. And over time, this bowing of the body became shorthand to reference a bowing of the heart in worshipful reverence. And this is Paul's humble posture of prayer as he begins in verse 14. In verse 15, Paul writes how every family in heaven and on earth has been named 
by God the Father. So a question here. Is this the family of God? Those on earth and in heaven whom God has called or named as His own? Or is this a reference to God naming all things in heaven and on earth? And Paul is simply referencing God as Creator, the namer of all things, sovereign over everything. Well, both options are theologically true. But given the context, I tend to agree with the reformer John Calvin, who writes, in that light of Paul's repeated emphasis on the union, the united family of God, of Jew and Gentile, in chapters 1 through 3, men, as he writes, have been brought into one family and one race through Christ, and they are enabled to claim kindred even with the angels. This would fit with Paul's emphasis on the privilege we have in Christ to be seated in heavenly places. This would also seem to match Paul's interest in verse 18, that Christ's love be comprehended with all the saints. So after Paul bows the knee to honor the Father, he begins to make requests on behalf of his Ephesian brothers and sisters. So first... The request for divine strengthening and empowerment for a deeply rooted love for Christ that's from the heart. We see this power for a deeply rooted love in 16 and 17. Paul appeals in verse 16 that from the riches of God's glory, he would permit the Ephesians to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in their inner beings. And why? Why is this? so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. If you turn just briefly to chapter 1, allow your eyes to scan over his, the first prayer that we have that he lays out, prayer of thanksgiving in chapter 1. See verses 18 and 19, and you'll notice in Paul's first prayer here, he asks God to allow the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened so we might know the immeasurable greatness of God's what? His power toward those who believe. In chapter 1, we gain an expanded awareness of God's power. But here in chapter 3, if you turn back there, Paul prays that God will now actually strengthen us with that power. He asks that this be done through the agency of the Spirit and that it will touch the very core of our beings. Perhaps this might be the difference between someone walking into a museum and seeing a a fine work of art under lights and through glass, and it's one thing to just look at it and behold it and consider it, and it's another thing to have the owner of that piece of art walk up, raise the glass, and say, it's yours. I'm gifting it to you completely. Do with it whatever you please. It is exclusively yours. I mean, marveling is one thing, but laying claim to it, having it gifted to you as your own is another thing entirely. This is how Paul has personalized our claim to the limitless power of God that we so desperately need. We're reminded of the Apostle Peter's words in 2 Timothy 1 when he writes, His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life 
and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. So God's inexhaustible power is what fuels Christian living. It's an amazing and humbling thought that a life of faith is propelled by the power of God. When a Christian forgives someone who has grievously sinned against them, that's the power of God at work in their life. When a Christian pleads to the Lord through tears of repentance to kill sinful habits, and God gives strength upon strength to see those destructive habits slowly lose their grip on the soul, that is the power of God at work. When fear begins to overtake a Christian's thoughts, and he or she fights to meditate on the truths of what they know is objectively true about God and the world and their own soul, that's the power of God at work. However, let's be clear, moral living, though, is is not an end in and of itself, as if just doing the right thing is all that Paul's concerned about. We should keep reading. This strength, this power is provided so that we might know inner being transformation. Not mere external conformity to certain subcultural rules and regulations around us. Inner being, inner man transformation that looks like Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. Resulting in lives that are rooted Deeply rooted and grounded in love. Are we suggesting that residence of Christ within us, uh, within our hearts, is a, a matter of a percentage level or something? Are we to assume that while I may have a fully charged battery, you may be down to only 13% or something like that? No. One is either a child of God or a child of this world dead in trespasses and sins, as Paul has already clarified in chapter 2. Nevertheless, we live the Christian life in a dependent manner. We recognize one's spiritual life can be nurtured and matured. A well-fortified spiritual life is something one builds over a lifetime of trusting Jesus in thousands of small ways day by day. And Paul prays that God's divine power would provide the needed strength for Christians to root themselves in Christ's love to the very core of who they are. Being rooted in Christ's love reminds us of the parable of the soils, a text that Paul will preach next Sunday. In this parable of the soils, Jesus warns of the danger of not being firmly grounded in good soil knowing that the sun will scorch such plants that have no depth to them. So reading this this morning, assess your heart. Does the love of Christ dwell in your heart by faith? If so, are you anchoring yourself to it? Is it what is central? It is what is it what drives you and animates you and gets you going and gets you fired up and, and is clear to all that love for Jesus is just at the core of who you are and what you do?
Children, are you thinking that maybe you're too young to love Jesus with all your heart? Do your very best to appreciate the things your parents do and even this church and what some of the things it does to try to help you root yourself in the love of Christ. You are not too young to know a vibrant love for Jesus. Teens, young adults, do you love Jesus? You probably have plenty of examples of people you know who have ruined their lives because they've centered themselves on worshiping the idols of this world. Will that be your story? The Apostle Paul, by extension, prays for you that your heart would belong exclusively to Christ. He's worth it. The rest of us in the room, a, a new year is upon us. New goals are being set. Habits are being analyzed. Resolutions are high, as always. Things such as be better at sticking to the budget, better at exercising, eating right, getting proper sleep, and so on and so forth. But where does nearness to God fit in? Those who were far off, Paul writes, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul writes in chapter 2, And yet, why are we so reluctant to approach the one who has gone to such lengths to draw us near? By God's grace and through the Spirit's help, let's make 2020 a, a decade of drawing close to Christ like we never have before. And for those of us who are here this morning who do not know nearness to God in any sense, I would encourage you to see the beauty, the surpassing worth of Christ. To turn from sin, embrace by faith Christ's own death on the cross to atone for your every sin, and He welcomes all who come to Him by faith, and He will never cast out a single, contrite, mourning sinner. If this is you, I pray that you would come to know Christ's love in your inner being today. Next we read in verses 18 and 19, the power to comprehend Christ's love is the nature of Paul's continual prayer. He continues his prayer in somewhat of a, a crescendoed manner. So the volume is ratcheting up, so to speak, on the same themes that he's been driving after thus far. Once more, Paul prays for strength to comprehend the full expanse of Christ's love. This is not a private affair, however. This is comprehension with all the saints. The immeasurable love of Christ is to be comprehended and worshipped by all the people of God. And how is this best done? In the gathered assembly of God's people on the Lord's Day. When we come together to pray as Paul models here, to praise God as Paul models in the hymn in chapter 1, to study the mystery of the gospel as Paul has unfolded, and to hear the voice of God as the Scriptures are read and proclaimed. Do you think in these terms? 
Each and every Lord's Day, you have the privilege to comprehend a little more of the staggering love of Christ. And you see it better within the community of God's people. Paul prays for God's power and strength, without which we are hopeless in grasping Christ's love. Some of the early church fathers got somewhat creative in these verses uh, when it comes to the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love. Uh, Speaking critically of that, John Calvin writes, he says, Augustine is quite delighted in his own acuteness, which which throws no light on the subject. Endeavoring to discover some kind of mysterious allusion to the figure of the cross, he makes the breadth to be love, the height, hope, the length, patience, and the depth, humility. This is very ingenious and entertaining, but what has it to do with Paul's meaning? Right? Perhaps a little more helpfully, another scholar by the name of John Stott has written this. He says, the apostle may only have been indulging in a little rhetoric or poetic hyperbole, yet it seems to me legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. So whatever the case, we need this kind of love more than we could ever know. We need it. And yet, for the Christian who thinks they've learned it all, they've mastered Christian doctrine, they've acquired all the Bible knowledge that you need, Paul reminds us, he humbles us in verse 19, when he says that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Even though we pray for strength and power to comprehend this love, we're reminded it is beyond the scope of human comprehension. We can never fully bottle it up and wrap our minds exhaustively around it. Paul's last and his final request is in this prayer is a a summary request in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And in a way, Paul is pulling together here everything that he's stated. It's out of the fullness of God, the riches of His glory, verse 16, that God grants power to our inner beings so Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. So this phrase, the fullness of God, is used by Paul two other times, and they are both in Colossians. Colossians 1.19 notes how all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. All the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Christ. Chapter later, Colossians 2.9 and 10, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he writes, And you have been filled in Him. So in Colossians, Paul wants his readers to know they are filled in Christ who is Himself the fullness of God. It's also interesting to see how Paul's earlier imagery from chapter 2 relates when he speaks of the church growing into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So being filled with the fullness of God reminds us of the fullness of God filling the temple 
under the old covenant worship. A reality now mediated through the work of the Spirit and through the person of Christ. Being filled with the fullness of God is not a mystical process, a feeling we hunger after. As we said before, it's, it's not as some of us might think like batteries, that some of us are 24% filled with the fullness of God and others of us are looking good at about 95%. Not, not so. We are in Christ. Therefore, we're filled already with the fullness of God. And yet, as Paul prays, we are still called to keep growing, continually, increasingly rooting yourself in the love of Christ, so it may dwell in your heart through faith. And this love surpasses knowledge. We read lastly in verses 20 through 21, this final doxology, a ascribing of praise to God and God alone, as he fittingly concludes the first half of this epistle. So this word of praise He writes, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The scholar and pastor John Stott, who we just read, dissects this verse in a helpful and illuminating manner when he writes this. He says, God's ability to answer prayer is forcefully stated by the apostle in a composite expression of seven stages. And this is is just how he's laying it out for us. He is able to do or to work, for he is neither idle nor active nor dead. He is able to do what we ask, for he hears and answers prayer. He is able to do what we ask or think, for he reads our thoughts. And sometimes we imagine things for which we dare not and therefore do not ask. He is able to do all that we ask or think, for He knows it all and can perform it all. He is able to do more than hyper beyond all that we ask or think, for His expectations are higher than ours. He is able to do much more or more abundantly than all we ask or think. For he does not give his grace by calculated measure. He is able to do very much more, far more abundantly than all we ask or think. For he is a God of superabundance. Far more abundantly is one of Paul's coined super superlatives, as some have referred to them. Immeasurably more. We struggle in English to even put together words that convey what he's doing in Greek. Uh, vastly more than more is <laughs> another way. Infinitely more is probably the best way to, to render it. Uh, and this is to capture the truth that there are no limits that can be placed on what God can do. The infinite ability of God to work beyond our prayers and our thoughts and our dreams is by the power at work within us. Within us individually, Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, and within us as a people, as the dwelling place of God through His Spirit. 
So there's nothing more to say, really, and nothing better that we can say than how Paul concludes, to him be the glory. And since the power comes from him, the glory must go to him. This glory is in the church and in Christ Jesus, as he writes, together, in the church and in Christ Jesus, inseparably united now and for eternity. The bride with his bridegroom, the head with the body, the chief shepherd with his sheep, the king with his subjects, the Lord with his people, the Savior with his redeemed. To him be the glory throughout all generations and all places forever and ever. The name of the Lord is to be praised. As we come down off of the, the heights of this doxology, and we think through this prayer as a whole and what it ought to mean for our lives, a few things to consider that might stand out. First, as we personalize these words, let's allow Paul's prayer of intercession to remind us of the privilege we have to speak to God. That may sound simple. It may sound rudimentary. Things we've heard for forever. You'll know, though, to what degree you consider it a privilege by how frequently you take this opportunity. Paul's intercession to God for others is deeply theological. Let's not miss that. In our worship services, each, each Lord's Day, stretch your hearts and your minds to pray grand themes of redemption. Ask God to provide fellow ministries and missionaries and church members in need as the pastoral prayer is offered to provide them with divine power to comprehend the infinite glory of Jesus' love. Pray these things. As growth groups resume this coming Wednesday, and you have the opportunity, many of you, to pray together in this room in small groups, may God help you to bring your theology to bear in your prayers with your brothers and sisters in Christ doing precisely what Paul's doing here in our home groups and Bible studies and other small group gatherings that take place routinely. Beware of the empty phrases of the Pharisees who love to heap up these phrases in order to give off the impression of spirituality. But you and I, without fearing man, let's pray the Bible. Let's pray its truths. And watch it shape us, even as we echo back to God things He already knows, but that we need more and more increasingly to root and ground ourselves in. The famous man of prayer, George Mueller, who lived by faith as much as any Christian ever has, wrote, the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life our thoughts, and our prayers. So what joy is ours when we pour our hearts out only to see God work super abundantly, vastly more than more, beyond all we ask or think. Second consideration 
I'd ask you to reflect on the question for a moment. To what degree are you presently living your Christian life without a conscientious appeal for God's power in your life? Just say that one more time. To what degree are you presently living your life without the conscientious appeal for God's power? I've been stunned with how frequently Paul zeroes in on this in the New Testament, the power of God as yours, as fuel for Christian living. It's not a matter of discussion for Paul. It's just a settled assumption. You cannot live the Christian life in which Christ dwells in your heart by faith and not call upon the Lord regularly for divine strength. So in your battle against sin, your efforts to set the mind on the things of the Spirit moment by moment, your challenge to love unlovely people, your pursuit of difficult people in evangelism, and on and on. Let's leave this morning with a renewed vision for God's power at work in our hearts and lives. We know this, but we forget this. We have nothing if the strengthening power of God is not energizing our pursuits to love Jesus in all dimensions of life. Third and lastly, as we consider applying this text, worship Jesus Christ. Worship Jesus Christ by tirelessly exploring the infinite treasures of His vast love. You cannot plumb the depths of the Savior's love. It surpasses knowledge. But there is something extraordinary about comprehending its beauty with all the saints in the fellowship of the local church. There is no better place to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love than alongside others whom He has rescued from sin. Root yourself this new year in the steadfast love of Jesus so you are ready for the storms of life. And as you do this, your life will increasingly become, in and of itself, a doxology of praise to God. I'll pray in just a moment. And afterwards, I've asked some of the musicians to sing a song entitled, Gospel doxology. It reviews the story of Christ's love before ending with a doxology as we often know it and sing it together. I'd encourage you to meditate prayerfully and echo within your heart, prayerfully respond to God through this song and what you know to be true about the glories of your sin, Christ's forgiveness, and the glory of being named as a child of God. Let's reflect even now in silence for just a moment before I pray. Our Father, our hearts are bowed before you now. We appeal to you, Father, that from the infinite storehouses, the riches of your glory, you would grant to Eden Baptist Church 
those in this room strength and power through your Spirit in our hearts, allowing Christ to dwell within us through faith ever more and more increasingly in our lives, rooting us, grounding us in that sweet, precious love of our Savior. Give us the strength to take in and to comprehend with all the children of God the, the expanse of your love. To know it, even though it surpasses knowledge, to know it as much as humans can know. Give us this, Father, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. You always, always do what is right. Will the judge of all the earth do what is right? A resounding yes. And yet we pray with such limitations. Do what pleases you. Do what pleases yourself and accomplish your sovereign purposes in us and for us. And we will be quick to give you the glory in all places, in all times, as your children. We pray this for the glory of your great name. Amen. As Rich mentioned, we are going to sing the song Gospel Doxology.